Do you want to do an intro? Oh no, this is all you, dude. All you. What? Yeah, I've done them all so far. You're the host. <laughs> no, I was a co-host. All right, all right, all right. I can do one if you want. Sure. All right. Welcome to the Gray Zone, the least prepared tennis coaching podcast, uh, but also the most prepared tennis coaching podcast uh, on the planet. Al, how's it going? Great, Zach. How you doing? I'm doing good. Talk to me about your uh, controversial Ben Shelton opinion. Oh, I wouldn't say it's controversial, but first off, did you get a chance to watch Mike Justin open? Uh, bits and pieces, but I wouldn't say much. Okay. But it's it's the one slam that, like, just the way my schedule works, it's it's on late at night, and that's, like, when I watch TV, so it's always a slam I end up watching the most of. And I also think it's just fun because it's, like, it's a fresh season for everybody, right? So everybody, I think, goes into it thinking they could be really successful, which is great. Um, yeah. There's a psychology element in there for sure. Um, so I was going to mention this last week, and I guess I watch a lot of college tennis because I got some boys down there and stuff like that. And I just like the pathway in Canada seems to now be really heavily centered around sending kids to college tennis. And those coaches, for the most part, are actually doing a pretty good job on transitioning a lot of guys to the tour. But that's a long way of saying like I've, I've been familiar with Shelton, Ben Shelton's game for a while. He's played at University of Florida, and especially because they have a little bit of a rivalry with with University of Kentucky. I, I tend to watch a lot of Ben. Um, tons of upside, but there's one thing. How much Ben have you seen? Have you have you been able to watch him play at all? Uh, also, once again, bits and pieces. I'll be honest; like I haven't seen him much. I've seen highlights essentially, and then when you when you when you teased your controversial opinion, I went up and and pulled up a few points and watched a little bit more. But I wouldn't say I've seen much of him. Okay. Well, um, hey, I really sorry. Like it doesn't does, doesn't make for good listening, but oh well. <laughs> that's that's fine. Um. So I really enjoy watching him play, but his forehand specifically, and this is maybe a little a bit of a coach's corner thing. And I know his dad is a high level coach and was a, a former pro, but his forehand is so unique where a it's massive, but mm. there's just such a quick deceleration on his forehand after impact. And mm. it's almost like he makes the decision to jab a ton of balls, um, yeah. specifically on his forehand, which I, I think we're, we're used to seeing a lot more on high level backhands. Like you see like a jabbing technique, a lot of times in counter situations on backhands. But this guy, a lot of time is like jabbing on forehands and he seems like he's just this really big and strong guy and like a strong arm. So it works for him. But long-term I'm really worried about uh, like the viability of his arm and his shoulder. If he continues to decelerate that quickly on a lot of forehands. And now the college tennis season season is so long and so grinding that maybe if any major injury was going to happen, it would have happened already. But this is every time I watch him play, I'm like, man, this is fun. But B, it's like, I think this guy's going to hurt himself. Yeah, I yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I mean, I definitely noticed that when I watched the clips of him, um, you know, and I had and I had a feeling that was that might be where you were going. Um, my thought, my only thought back to you was like, you know, when was the first year that people said like, ah, oh, Nadal is, you know, Nadal's knees can't take it. He's done. Oh, you know, I mean, yeah, it was like what, like ten years ago, like ten years ago. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and even before that, too. Even before that, it was like they, yeah, people were predicting it forever. Yeah. And even even with his arm, there was people at the like experts at the start that were like, "Oh, his arm can't sustain the way that he finishes," which we've kind yeah. of realized is like an incredibly common and relaxed oriented finish. But sorry. Yeah. No. I mean, and so that's you know, I'm not the right person to be speaking on this because I'm, I'm not an expert in the, in the human body or in that area of things, but like, 
you know, the access that these guys have to like the best physios, the best SNCs, the best treatments, the best doctors, um, you know, to the ability to maximize what their body can do um, for as long as possible is, you know, unprecedented. And so I wonder, I wonder if it's one of those situations where like he can take care of the rest of his body. I mean, that's the thing too, is like, you look at like, um, you look at like pitchers, baseball pitchers, right? Yeah. I mean, tremendous like decelerations going on. Um, tremendous, obviously, risk of, of uh, elbow particularly, but elbow and shoulder issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's guys who have long careers. There's guys who manage it. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it healthy. <laughs> Certainly, I mean, high performance sport isn't healthy, right? But yeah. like, um, it doesn't mean that you can't, make a make a career out of it for sure for sure so i just wanted to kind of go on the record because i think and i think this ties in a lot to something we chatted about last week which is like the and it was a brief conversation but the overall rhythm and relaxation of players right and um i I think it's i don't want to get shot for saying this but like i feel like it's common with a lot of american players where they're the rhythm and relaxation doesn't seem to be as um pronounced as a lot of other countries in the world mm. and now don't challenge me on that because i have no actual facts to back that up outside of like my own anecdotal experience with watching or touring against americans or watching high level americans play um and i, I hope i'm wrong because it'd be great it, i mean it's just always good for tennis when america has a really good crop of guys and i think ben has a chance to be maybe the strongest strongest guy in that group just the way that he plays is so massive the other, the other part of that, I guess, would get to like, obviously, there's with a lot of level, with a lot of coaching, and I, I don't think with much high level coaching, there's, um, I guess, a lot of coaches are really big on the idea of like finishing a swing, and like we, that that's been just debunked to all hell, and we don't need to go into the specifics of why that is anymore. But when you're working with your athletes, like, do you think there's a psychology, a psychology, um, linked to the idea or a concept of a player? being able to finish their swing and i can be more specific if you'd like yeah well i was just gonna say what do you mean so like okay the follow-through itself is a, is a function of, of a lot of things and the, the main function in my opinion is like some form of deceleration or making the ball tactically do what you'd like it to do right um mm-hmm. I've, I've worked with a couple players where when they appear to be very set up and in very good situations and it appears their reception is going to be very good they still make a lot of decisions to to abbreviate their swing or finish finish in a way that would be, let's mm. say, uh, uncommon for whatever reason. Yeah. So I've talked with players a little bit about like, hey, listen, there's lots of ways that things could finish, but if you feel like you're set up in a, in a, in a position where you're going to receive the ball well, like maybe you should have a feeling of finishing your swing the way you want to finish your swing. And mm. I know that that'll have an out that potentially has an outcome on the ball that's sent, but it's also this mindset of like, if you were to chart. Djokovic, for instance, and like, okay, how often does he actually finish the swing the way that he might want to finish the swing versus some other players on the tour? And how do those stats break down? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I no, I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, yeah, if, uh, you know, how you finish the swing is an indication of what happened before it, of course. And so, you know, you can manipulate that to increase the chances of things happening through contact or, or slightly before contact and definitely after. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think that it, generally speaking, the better, uh, you know, the better setup you are, the more likely you'll be able to finish 
the way you want in a sort of more quote unquote traditional or normal, what's normal for you um, sort of fashion. Um, but I also think, uh, you know, I, I also think there's value in, and and this is, this definitely isn't a controversial statement, but there's value in having a repeatable swing, right? Like I, that's, that's, you know, that's what I say to players sometimes is like, we know, okay, every forehand is different. Right. And yeah. there's a, and lots of different shots and lots of different techniques and lots of different follow throughs. Of course, we need all those because, like you said, we have to do different things tactically with the ball. Um, but at the same time, you know, if we can, in a sense, minimize those options, of course, no two swings are alike. But if we can minimize those options so that instead of having to ha- have uh, 20 forehands in your arsenal, you have eight, let's say. I mean, I'm, I'm pulling those numbers out of sure. nowhere, but sure, sure. let's say yeah. something like that. Then every time you're practicing, you know, if you're hitting a thousand forehands, well, if you, I mean, this is really back of the napkin math, but if you're hitting a thousand forehands and you divide it by 20, right, that's 50 per each, each motor pattern. But if you've only got eight, that's 125 per motor pattern, you're going to get better faster. Right. And so like having more repeatable technique that's consistent, that's the same every time, you know, increases the chances that you can be like going back to Djokovic that you can be as solid and consistent as he is. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know if that goes to what you're talking about, but yeah, no, I think that's exactly in line with what I'm talking about. So yeah, well said. Um, And I think, and I guess all this stuff, I relate back to my own coaching, right. Where it's like, I think one thing that I have to continue to do is give players the freedom um, to experience like different paths to the racket and different finishes and different ways to accelerate and decelerate. But in the same time, outlining like, well, in a perfect world for your style of play, like this could be the most common swing path or whatever that you yeah. take, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But I think, I think uh, not to take us uh, take you too much off topic, but I think like what's really interesting about about the Ben Shelton situation, going back to him and his 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 shoulder or his arm is uh you know for me it speaks to a couple of things one is like i alluded to i think in one of the episodes is like you know fix it when it's not working sure. you know like if it, if it ain't broke don't fix it in other words like i yep. think a big part of high performance i think sometimes i said before we spend too much time maybe worrying about is this going to break down in the future as opposed to saying like well where am i where how am i winning matches now how am i losing matches now yep. and let's address that I must yeah. let me win more points. I think that, you know, that's the job of high performance, especially sure. when you're on tour and making money. But I think even before that, because yeah. so few things are not changeable in the future. Absolutely. There's very, very few things where it's going to be impossible to fix in the future. So let's focus on the present and what we need to do to get better now. And his forehand is a clear indication of that. It works. Absolutely. He's kicking butt with his forehand. So why would you, why would you mess with it? I yeah. think that's number one. But I think the other thing too, is like, you know, watching and so this can be our like uh, Australian o- Australian Open uh, recap talk. But like watching Murray, obviously, is heroic efforts. Uh, I mean, first of all, ridiculous. Like, right. uh, I'm not I'm not a big person to have like heroes or be inspired by, uh, you know, famous people or whatever. But I couldn't I mean, I was floored, um, you know, watching him back to back matches, five sets and, and coming back from two sets down and everything. I mean, just insane but it also what adds to that is like you know there's the personal element of watching him walk out on court at stockholm open as like this sort of old grizzly uh you know uh, injured looking sort of beaten down old dog 
uh, fighting against these young guys, seeing that aspect, but then also having watched the documentary, which anyone who hasn't watched it, I can't recommend it enough. It's such a good insight into the mind of a, of an absolute champion and like just elite beyond elite athlete. Um, and, but it's amazing. Like, cause he, cause he meets, he meets with the the doctor or the surgeon who eventually is going to do his surgery. And I can't remember the exact conversation, but he says something like, uh, you know, will I be able to play tennis again uh, with this? And she says, she says like, if we do the surgery, you will lead a pain-free, like just a normal human life for the rest of your life. Or maybe she says, you know, 30 years or whatever. I don't know, but sure. something like that. And she says, if you, you can try and go back and playing tennis, uh, but I put it at, and once again, I don't remember the exact numbers, but she says like, I put it at like 80% that within seven years, you're going to be in pain again. Right. And like, and he took that information and was like, all right, I'm, <laughs> I'm back on tour yeah. and he's just grinding and fighting. And I don't know what his rankings up to now, but it's just gradually just inching his way up. He's Unreal, beating right? guys like Berrettini top 10. He's beating them in, in, in a grand slam in five sets. He's beating a winning another five set match two days later. Like, yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. And so it's that anyway, all that to go to tie it back into the shoulder thing of like, maybe it will be a problem and maybe he'll just manage it for 10 yeah. years the way Andy's doing with his hip and the way Nadal is doing with his knees. Yeah. And, and that's what he's willing to do. And that's what makes these guys kind of sick. Yep. Well said. Um, I like you. I mean, also having my heritage being Scottish. I, I, like, I like you I too, Al. Yeah, <laughs> I like you. Um, no, I, I also like Scotland because uh, all my family's there and I, I like Andy. Um, this this brought to mind. Have you seen the highlights of that Kokonakis Andy match? Uh, I, I think I only saw the, the ridiculous like when he saved the smashes. Okay, so that's exactly what I want to talk about because mm. talked a lot on this podcast about the psychology of stuff, right? And like one of the um, one of the coaching mantras in tennis can is to give your opponent a chance to lose. And like I feel like sometimes at certain ages, juniors really take that to heart. But it gets to a certain stage with some juniors' development where they're like, well, they just don't be- believe that anymore. Where they're just like, no, this guy, the guy's going to finish. The guy's going to finish. We have this match like like packed house at Australian Open and Kokonakis is pretty much steamrolling. I think at the time he's up one or two breaks or maybe that points to go up two breaks. And you play that point a million times. Kokonakis probably wins it every time, but one time. Yeah. And just to see like with a iron hip or a cobalt, cobalt hip or whatever, Andy just giving his opponent a chance to lose constantly and finding his way back into it and winning that point. And like from a psychological perspective, that absolutely changed the entire dynamic of the match. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's like, so we talk about like the importance of every point. It's like, that was the most important point of the match. Right. And it just, yeah. It. Yeah. I, I talk about that all the time. I said, like, I think first of all, you should be you know, like every point matters. Like, like every, you know, the six, four, six, four match is decided by, you know, six to 12 points. So of course every point matters. And so you should be fighting for every single one. But beyond that, like you said, there's a huge psychological aspect to chasing down a ball like that and winning a point like that and getting in your opponent's head. Um, yeah. And, and I think anyone who doesn't buy into those two arguments put together, uh, yeah, isn't a high performer. I, I just think like you, you don't, you don't understand what it means to, to be a competitor in that case, if you're willing to let those points go by bunch of not silly fillies yeah for sure not that not, not that it can't be developed careful there al this is a pg-13 podcast <laughs> um not that it can't yeah, be developed by spotify but, 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that was interesting. Anyway. So on the, uh, I'm just going to, again, go on the record saying, love Ben Shelton. Love it. I think he's good for tennis. I'm worried about his arm long-term, but as Zach said, there's lots of lots of guys who have been able, able to manage stuff. So let's hope he has a healthy career, but loses to every Canadian and I guess Swedish player yeah. that he plays. Uh, there we go. You know, it's crazy as a complete side note, but the U.S. now has, I'm pulling it up right now. So, uh, you know, Al has to wait, but maybe I edited it out for everyone else. Yeah. But uh, no, no, but so 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 the U.S. has 15 players in the top 100 of the ATP and 15 players in the top 100 of the WTA. And first of all, that's I think it's cool. I think the Americans have a have a fun way of playing, and I think it's just nice to see some you know some high level players coming out of North America as well. Um, sure. But I was just, was just like I said, just complete side note. But I I feel like I still see so much stuff on social media of like Americans bitching about the state of American tennis. Right. And like complaining, <laughs> complaining about the USTA and complaining about this and ah, oh, American tennis sucks and this is the. And I'm like, have you seen the rankings? Like, do you guys yeah. look at what's going on? Like, you guys are doing insanely well. Yeah, okay, sure. You don't have a, like four players in the top 15, but Sweden also doesn't have seven in the top 25. Fun right. fact: Peter Lundgren, his highest ever career ranking was 25 in the world, and at the time he was the seventh best Swede. No <laughs> way! It's like, Wild. oh yeah, yeah. I looked, I looked up on Wikipedia a while back, and I was like, oh, sorry, what? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like times change, right? Like tennis is a much more global sport now than it was 30, 40 years ago. Of sure. course, you're not going to have the same world domination that you did before. But 15 players in the top 100 is really good. But it seems like I almost feel like like it's just like people like a scapegoat. Like people want to complain. Um I think of it almost as a bit of like a oh, once again talking out of turn, but like a bit of a British mindset where I feel like uh there's this uh yeah I like feel like no matter like the success that British players have, people are always complaining and especially the media obviously putting British players down, you know, uh, criticizing Raducanu or criticizing Tim Henman or criticizing Murray or whatever. Like there's a long history of that, but I almost feel like there's a bit of that mentality with some of the American coaches uh, or even fans uh, just bitching about the state of American tennis when in actual fact they're doing remarkably well. For sure. Yeah. I guess I think it speaks to like the unbelievably high standard that was set by the generations before that. Right. As you know, probably, but uh yeah, don't take it for granted, U.S. That's unreal, man. Holy. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And okay. it was like some of those guys could win slams. Like I think Taylor Fritz was like the odds of him winning the the Australian Open like actually were pretty good. Really? Now, does that mean he's actually going to win it? Then I, I don't know. But you know, like there's some guys that are at least in the conversation. What did Tommy Paul Semi as well? Tommy Paul Semi. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sick. Yeah, cool. and they, and a good group of young guys too as well, right? I mean, the uh, Fritz, Diafo, and Paul. Are all 25, they're top 20. And then you've got Corda, Brooksby, 22 years old each. Yep. Shelton's 20. So yeah, it's uh yeah, it's pretty neat. Fun yeah. to see. Okay, you ready for an imp this is like the the lightning round. Are you ready for an impromptu coaching question? Absolutely. The lightning round. Let's do it. Yeah. So uh I was I was on court the other day. France. And one of our <laughs> 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 wrong. <laughs> One of our uh, academy players was coming in to just to do some volunteer coaching and she walked past and said hi to me and uh, just uh, just sort of semi jokingly said, uh, quick, t- tell me how to be a good coach. And so, Al, 30 seconds. Go. What do you say? How to be a good coach? Yeah. Uh, just Number one, just give a shit. OK, yeah, good. That's, oh, I'm still going. I have more than one answer. Oh, oh, sorry. Is that it? Uh, I'd say num- number one, give a shit. Um, yeah. Number two, um, understand for as much as you know how little you actually know. 
Um, that's number two. Um, and number three, get really good at coaching the ball. Um, Ooh. number It's four. so it. Yeah, okay. Then you're out of your 30 seconds. Go. Number four. Uh, number four, I'd say is. No, it's two. Number. No, I don't have number four. I'm lying to you. <laughs> That's fair. Those are the three That's off the top fair. of my head. And I'm sure they're it's... not right, but those are the three off the top of my head. Yeah, well, I didn't tell you there are right answers. No, but the it's it's so interesting. I just thought it was interesting because like it put me on the spot, obviously. And so I said, if I remember correctly, I said, uh, I said, like, bring bring the energy, like have good energy. Um, I said, uh, praise more than you criticize. And then I said, be really clear with what you want them to do better. I think that's great, too. So. Yeah. All right, that yeah, that wraps I mean, up me, the lightning round. On, like, yeah. We're on the same wavelength of the first one. I think like giving a yeah. shit and uh, what's the one you said? You said um the, your first one? Uh I said uh, yeah, like bring bring the energy. Bring good bring energy. energy. I mean, there there's so yeah. so much in the the same ballpark, right? Where like we we both can name examples of guys who have had very successful coaching careers that just do those two things really really well. And they might not even coach the right things, but if you just do if you just give a shit and bring the energy, all, all of a yeah. sudden, you're in the top one percentile of coaches in the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a huge difference. What, what I think is also worth noting or what's really interesting is that, um, you know, you went, I like I went, I think I'd say a little bit more practical. Yeah. And you went a little bit more big picture, right? Like yeah, maybe, yeah. give a shit. Give a shit, I think, is actually even more big picture than bring the energy for what it's worth. Sure. And then you also said like coach the ball, and there was what was, what was the second one? Was the second, second one, coach one the ball? is um for something along the lines of like for oh yeah you, like, don't you don't know about you... tennis you don't know anything yeah 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 that's right which I think which is also very big picture right it's very like how do you develop long term as a coach and and growth mindset and that sort of thing and I went more practical with like um you know like you know how you give feedback and 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 how you design your sessions or what you tell them to do and stuff which I think is interesting because I think like. Uh, a bit like we talked about in one of the other episodes, but like there's a lot of focus, even within coach ed, um, but even the just the discussion around coaching, there's a lot of focus on like what we know or, you know, the, the sport of tennis and what we do. But it's all equally important to talk about like your longevity as a coach, how you stay motivated, how you how you stay energetic, but also like you alluded to, like your growth mindset and how you, how you stay open to new ideas and where you go searching for, for feedback and, and information. Like, I think we we've, you know, it's pretty well established that, you know, the performance factors for a tennis player are sort of the technical, tactical, physical, mental, although even there you could argue then like, well, how do we factor in like an athlete's career longevity? How do we factor in the emotional thing? How do we, you know, stuff like that. Um, but then but then dealing with the like coaching side of things of like, what are the skill sets required for coaching? Cause it's not as simple as like, well, you have to be able to run a good practice. It's like, well, yeah, okay. But you also have to be able to coach at tournaments, but then you also have to be able to interact with parents and, and agents and people like that. And then you also have to be able to maintain your energy. Like when you're on the road, 20 weeks a year, how does that fit into your like coaching development? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Like the different, uh, the different angles that we took. No, no, for sure. But I think it's also, yeah. And I'm sure this player, as they're walking by, he was like half, half joking, but yeah. like <laughs> you and I care so much about it that we're like, like I'll lose sleep thinking about it now. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. 
Um, no, but I, th- I like those off the cuff things. Uh, that I remember there was one on Twitter. I mean, ages ago that was like, what are the, what are the two mistakes? What are the, the two uh, most common mistakes that coaches make? And, and uh, I only I remember one of my out. answers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a critical error. I only remember one of my two, which was uh, assuming they know what the player is thinking. Right. But, but I, I like those things. I, not because they provide uh, definitive answers, but it just sort of gets at the heart of like, what do you believe and what's your gut feeling about this issue? Um, ah, I think I think it's just good good food for thought. Yeah. I have, okay, I've got, I've got one question for you and then one story. And yeah. um, when I was going through coach certification, a lot of the feedback that I got from a lot of CFs was like, I get praised a lot for like being high energy and for generally caring. And the first couple of times I was like, oh, cool. Okay, that's great. That's great. And I certainly think like those things are true. Um, but then after some evaluation and stuff, a lot of the feedback I got was still on the same two things. And it, it started right. to bug me a little bit with like, well, could you, could you praise my coaching? Like, could you praise what I'm actually <laughs> saying? And not just, uh, but, and, and, and they were right too. So it was kind of interesting sometimes how, when you get feedback, that's even positive, like it's like, well, and that's a weird way of saying it, but like, what's the feedback that you're not getting? That's that could also, I mean, influence your coaching. Right. And mine was yeah. essentially just being like, just being a better coach, but, uh, my question for well, you was that's one way to take it but it could also just be that the cfs very much value like it could just be that it shows the importance of good energy I, I, and, you were, well. and you were kicking it you were knocking it out of the park with that one so you could yeah. take it that yeah. way be a very very cynical sort of zach O'Lean style thing to do to be like this must mean i suck at coaching oh for, for sure right yeah, dude it's, <laughs> yeah. um so my question for you on that is you've you've experienced tennis a lot of places you've seen coaches from around the world and there's certainly not going to be a right or wrong answer with this, but what do you think in general, if we were to start with like, if you were to name one or one, two or three things that you think at an international standard really gets done well amongst a lot of tennis nations, like what do you think are the, like the, the key things that you, you think are getting done from a coaching perspective? Ooh. Um, Could be like great clothing, within, good shoe sponsorship. Within, Tennis, like as a tennis nation, though. So you're you're talking about the whole infrastructure, or are you just talking about the coaches? Uh, I'm talking about just the coaching. Just like, what do you what, what do you think consistently is done well amongst coaches? Because, and then the flip side of this is that my next question is going to be, what are the two or the three things that you think consistently need to be better amongst coaches? And this is like this is so general and generic, right? Because there's uh, obviously like every coach is different. Every coach is going to look at stuff differently. You and I look at stuff differently. So it's it's more just in your own experience, which is vast. What do you think? Oh, yeah, it's tough. I mean, the tricky thing, to, to, uh, I'll just waffle as always, but like the tricky thing is that, um, you know, you have, I don't know, like if I, uh, I'll be an asshole and like, and I'll, and I'll say this, like if I threw it at you, like, what do you think amongst pro players, people are doing well and not doing well? It's like, well, everyone's different, right? And yeah. so many coaches are in different content. Not that it not only, okay, every coach is different, but like, you know, I see some coaches coaching ITF players, but I also see coaches coaching 12 and unders and I see coaches coaching ATP players and and so on yeah. and so forth. And it's like, but then also to say like, okay, you know, I, I worked in what, two, two, three clubs in Canada and I, or, you know, two, three contexts, let's call it that. And within the Canadian system, and then I've worked at one club in Sweden. And then of course I've traveled across Europe at tournaments, but not working in clubs or anything or in academies or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So I don't have, 
you know, my my perspective or my data is still pretty much pretty restricted to a small sample size. Okay, can, um, I, rephrase, can I rephrase them? Yeah, because I'm being a useless uh, <laughs> guest at this uh, point. You're lucky you're handsome, man. I'll tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> God bless audio only podcasts. Um, so wait, Al said I'm handsome. That must mean that must mean I'm not smart. <laughs> what feedback isn't he giving me? <laughs> Um, so you, you've published some coaching content on, is it Zacheline.com? Zacheline.com. Um, and some videos and stuff too, and obviously share ideas. So the the reason for you publishing that stuff has to be somewhat specific, right? There has to be some part of things, and maybe I'm looking too far into this now, but you're either publishing it because it's something that you really value as a coach, or you think that it's not getting done by coaches. So by you attempting to educate coaches on it, it might be done better. So I guess the way I'm going to rephrase this question is, why do you choose to post the stuff that you do on your website? Um, I mean, it started in COVID when I wasn't coaching as much and I had free time and I knew that I would go crazy. So I was like, let me, let me put some stuff out here. Cause I like talking about coaching, hence the podcast. Um, so, I mean, it started with sort of things that were on my mind and I thought like, Hey, this, it also, yeah, I wanted to, there was stuff that I thought was that I thought I could contribute and thought was interesting, but it was also stuff that, um, I felt like I wasn't seeing anywhere else online. I felt like I could fill a gap. Um, yeah. There were some topics that weren't being addressed. There was a lot of, I mean, we know there's obviously a lot of the same stuff, like how to hit a eh, modern forehand. I mean, there's, all, you know, the ATP forehand. I mean, there's all that stuff online, of course. Um, but I thought, hey, like the, I'm not seeing these topics online. So let me, let me, let me address this um just to to put it out there and and, and see what people think. And, and as a fun exercise for me, because of course, when you, when you work on this, you start to put it on a paper and you go like, hmm, actually, is that how I do things or how do I explain this? And then you realize that, if, you know, a bit like you said, like you realize that you don't know as much as you thought you did. So it was a fun and still is. I just don't do it as frequently. It was a fun exercise. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was the motivation. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I was going to say, I would assume through that, that you probably go, okay, how I would probably do it was I'd go into it with this idea of like what it, what it is I want to break down from a coaching perspective. But mm-hmm. as I'm doing it, I would probably... Um, in the process, change my own opinion of how that skill or whatever it is you're teaching would break down. You know, like, I think like, as some like, writing that content would make me much stronger at delivering that content in the same sense. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, I mean, it's that age old thing, right? Of like, if you want to test yourself on like, if you know a subject, it's like, go write it down and, and, and present it to someone. And yep. you very quickly go like, oh, I actually don't know this as well. <laughs> I was like, if you don't know it well enough to teach it to someone, or at least very, very least explain it, uh, then you don't know it. You don't, yeah. you don't, you don't know, you haven't mastered it. And so, yeah, when you have to put it down on paper, um, when you, when you have to be precise with your words and you have to get it across to like anyone who might be reading it, uh, it's a real, it's a real test. For sure. But I mean, I'll, 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 I'll make an attempt to answer your question, um, um, I maybe I'd have to think about it more, but I think one thing that comes to mind is I think I think that the best performance coaches um, get the job done. And I know that sounds very simplistic and maybe obvious, but I think it's what I would, uh, or it's not what I would describe because the term already exists and I didn't invent it. Um, but what's, <laughs> what's, but what's called uh, first principles thinking, which is uh, at least the way I visualize it is like just working your way down the tree of like, 
what's called okay this is the problem how do i solve it here's the solution okay but this is stopped by another problem what's that problem okay what's the solution for that and just working your way all the way down um so you know uh kids missing too many forehands how come uh their preparation is bad okay well how come because they're preparing this way okay i'm going to teach it oh it's not working uh how come well because they don't have good enough body awareness well okay so then how do i address that i'm going to work on their body awareness uh but we don't have enough uh hours of training and uh to to spend doing that okay well then how do we solve that okay well then they do stuff off court oh but they don't have the equipment okay well then we we buy the equipment or like just get the job done and i think that and it's very difficult to do, but I, I think that a lot of uh, programs and coaches, and once again, I'm not perfect. I fall into this as well, get held back by they, you know, they reach some problem and they go like, well, this can't be solved. And so we're, we're stuck with this. Whereas right. I think the best performance coaches and, and programs, academies, whatever you want to call them, um, are, 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 don't take no for an answer essentially, and are relentless in, in getting the job done. I think it's your, if you say, I'm going to, I'm going to make my kid make 65% of first serves, get the job done. That's your responsibility. And I, and I, and I think, and of course we're, no one's perfect. It's not going to work every single time, but I think that mindset of relentless, like ownership of taking full responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. And how come it didn't work? How okay? You said it was. You said their first percentage is going to be sixty-five percent. It's still averaging fifty-five percent. How come? Uh, because the technical thing I did didn't work. Okay, well, what are you going to do now? Okay, well, now I'm going to try this technical thing. Oh, that's not working. How come? Well, they're not strong enough. Okay, boom. Implement the the right SNC program for them. Okay, yeah. we're going to get them stronger. Oh, that's not working. How come? Uh, well, we couldn't get enough hours. Okay, boom. Fix that. Like, yeah. take responsibility. And of course, that applies to the player as well. But I think that that mindset i think that's a true high performance mindset sure. is you get the job done no matter what and that takes of course like willpower resiliency whatever you want to call it but it also takes uh like mental acuity or whatever you want to call it to be all to always be problem solving and to always be thinking about why isn't this working what is the solution to this and and to also eliminate uh and to to really question the assumptions you have right because if you if you don't question those assumptions, you just go like, oh, well, that's not going to work because he's not a good enough athlete. Can I piggyback on it's that? Like, well, yeah, yeah, go for it. Because I think, and you're alluding to this as well, but part of it as well is if you've been working on a skill for so long and it's just not getting there and it's not getting there, sometimes as a coach, you got to be honest with yourself about like, well, maybe maybe the way I went out the first time is not the way that was the most effective. So now we have yeah. to, I think some coaches fall in the pattern of like, uh, they they set up the training environment for whatever skill it is they want to get done and it's not getting done it's not getting done not, not getting done so they just keep doing it the same way for six months and sooner or later there's got to be some ownership on the coach to be like okay well this might have worked with a, play, a different player but it's not working with this player so now like i need to be more creative about how am i going to get the job done with whatever which goes back to your, your whole thing of like just ownership on getting the job done right and not taking it yeah. personally when it doesn't get done because like well just now you got to be better yeah yeah and i think we're not I mean, a lot of the time we're not trying to like, uh, you you know, we're not trying to split the atom here. You know, we're not trying to cure cancer. Like most of this stuff, uh, you know, is we know, we know what the possible solutions are. You might try the first one and it doesn't work. And then you try the second one, it doesn't work. But, and eventually you get to the fifth one and it does work. That might happen. Right. But we're not dealing with any of life's great mysteries here. There's a couple of things, of course, that are that are still, you know, 
you know, choking is one of those things where like people, okay, the, you know, the, the experts, they have an idea of why it happens and what causes it and what can be done, but it's not like a perfect science. Otherwise, otherwise no, none of the top hundred would be choking because they can all pay the right people to, to get it done. But I mean, for the most part, we're not dealing with any, any great mysteries of, of human nature. These are all things that we know uh, that we know how to do. It's just a question of, of, do you have, like I said, the, you know, the willpower and the, you know, the sharpness mentally to, to keep attacking every problem and, and keep trying new things and, and problem solving until it gets done. Yeah. And I got two stories on that. So just the other day, um, a few weeks ago, I'm at a tournament, uh, a four-star level event with a couple, couple athletes. And um, I really wanted this one player who's been working really hard to win the event. Right. Um, he's been working really hard toward it. So I go to the tournament director and I'm like, Hey, I'll give you $500 if you just let my player win. And they're like, no, 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 I can't do it. So I'm like, okay, I rethink this. I go back to the drawing board. I'm like, okay, 600. Says no, 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 no. <laughs> Finally, come to okay, seven fifty, and the guy's like, sure. So my player wins. So coaches, it's all about problem solving. For legal reasons, I'd like to outline that that is a satirical joke that is uh, not rooted in reality. Um, but the last last thing I'll say on this too, because I think that's interesting. Where it's um, I've mentioned before, but Ben Armstrong has been such a big influence on my own coaching, and Louis Kaye was such a big influence on everybody's coaching around the world. But I think Ben's as well. And Ben is, keeps sharing this story where he's like, I was getting pretty good, like I was getting. I thought pretty close to Louis's level in some things and he'd come and help a lot of my players. Uh, and sometimes I'd go and help just other players. And he'd be like, I'd get to the point where I could talk to an athlete about a problem they're having. Um, and within like, say it was something technical within like maybe 10 to 12 feeds, I could really have identified and changed, changed it already. Like I, within the very short amount of feeds, the, the player would show, I guess, what it was that was going to take them over the top. And Ben was always frustrated because like Louis could do it in five balls and his whole thing of like, there was just some, some, something that he wasn't doing that was taking twice the amount of time for him to get to the solution that, that Louis was. And he'd, he'd stay up all night thinking about like, how is it that he can do it? And that's kind of related, but not related. But I think it goes back to like that whole fun thing about like just taking ownership over stuff where it's like Ben being an unbelievable coach and Louis probably being like the premier coach um, in the world ever. And just like having a standard of like, how do I get closer to that? And like five balls is not very different. Like what's f- five balls difference is what? 10 seconds of coaching. But it's yeah. like, he was so driven to be like, I want to get this right. I want to get it like as good as it can be. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a funny one. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought it back around there because that's why I was listening to it going like, like if you're getting the job done, you know, like what's, like you said, what's the difference in 10 extra seconds? Like yeah. if you're getting the job done, you're getting the job done. But I think it's also interesting. There's this sort of, uh, and maybe maybe uh, those who those who knew me, uh, you know, five years ago or so will laugh. But there's this interesting like idolization of Louis in Canada. And of course, I still think he's an absolute legend and like genius. Um, but it, it comes out of that thing of like, how do you like, how do you measure? Like, how do you measure how good of a coach someone is? Um, you know, of course, of course, we can sit there and like if we look at doubles rankings right now. Uh, you know, of course you could say like, you know, he has some good players, but of course there's a bunch of other good doubles players who aren't coached by him, but he has a, he has a track record over, over multiple decades and stuff. So he probably has the most dominant doubles coaching track record of all time. Um, but then, but then you look on the, the single stuff and the technical stuff and it's, and I, and I think he's, uh, amazing. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. I, I think I think I guess what I'm getting at is I think that in the past I was such a uh, I was such a Louis fan that I think I maybe like 
didn't even, not that I dismissed, but I just didn't invest the energy into listening to other sources, right. uh, really intelligent, not like in person, I would listen to people in person, but I didn't seek out online yeah. and stuff, other, uh, other resources, other, uh, really accomplished coaches, because I just, I was such a, a Louis guy. Right. Um, but there's, you know, there's lots of guys who've coached grand slam champions and sure. talk about like Tommy Paul's coach, Brad Stein, like coach Jim Currier. Now he's coached. Tom- like there's a lot yeah. of people who've done some good stuff out there. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's worth mentioning as well. And, and I think, I think it's also interesting then to go because Louis is obviously uh, so intelligent and is so good at putting things into structures and I'm a huge structure guy. Um, but it's so interesting listening to coaches who don't have those structures and then trying to figure out, well, like if they are successful, then why are they successful? Because maybe they don't know, right? Because they're not putting it into a box the way Louis is. They're not putting it and delivering it on a curriculum. Yeah. But we can listen to them talk and try to figure out, okay, well, what do they, what do all these coaches have in common? I think, I think it leads to some interesting discussions, but all that to say, I don't want to sound like, uh, I, I don't think it does, but I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing Louis because I, uh, I, 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 mm, I don't know if I can say this, but I was going to say, I wonder if I've like consumed more Louis content than anyone on the planet is possibly not true, but uh, top percentile percentile for sure. And given, given my age and the limited in-person time I've had with him, I've probably consumed the most content. Of course, people who've been close into him have, 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 uh, consumed more, but so I've absorbed, you know, virtually everything that he's said publicly, not virtually. I think everything that he said publicly, I've I've consumed and absorbed and oh, hundred percent. So, so, so a huge, huge fan, but I also think like, Let's not, I, I think sometimes in, in Canada or some Canadians can, and I, once again, I was like this, I was like this five years ago, but I think can get a little too, uh, can maybe idolize them a little too much at the expense of a lot of other valuable uh, resources and valuable minds out there in the tennis coaching world. I think I'd fall in that category as well. Um, yeah. And, and I think sometimes that uh, that's, yeah, that shadow looms large on coaching education in Canada. Um, for as much as great as there is a lot of great coaching content in Canada, I think sometimes the mindset is, well, well it's not Louis. Right. Almost, yeah. almost to a detriment. Right. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just share to really real, uh, real quickly. Like, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day with Brad Stein. That's why it's on my mind. Um, coach of Tommy Paul. Uh, Brad Stein coach- fanboy over here, huh? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but he also coached uh, what's his face, uh, Kevin Anderson, to the final of Wimbledon, and then of course coached uh, Jim Courier when he was uh, to number one in the world, and he's done other stuff as well. But those are the highlights that I can remember. Um, and he was talking about footwork, and he and he says, uh, and he's and I've actually I've met him at the Stockholm Open. He's so he's a super nice guy, super chill. And he but he says in the podcast like I'm a super big footwork guy really big believer in that. And he breaks down his sort of, his sort of notion of footwork. And it was like, you have number one swings, which are when your weight goes from your right foot to your left foot. And then you have number two swing, which was essentially a back pivot. I don't remember how he describes it, but it was like a back pivot when you like rotate backwards, he sort of says. And then when you're on the run, you have the run through and you have what I call the move. And he's like, can you go on YouTube and see my thing on the tennis channel and see what the move is? And I haven't finished the podcast. I think he goes in a little bit more detail, <laughs> but that was his sort of system yeah. for footwork. And it was like the polar opposite of Louie, right? I mean, it's yeah. like the exact <laughs> opposite approach. And I was just laughing, listening to it going like, you know, there's still like a 2% of me, but like five years ago, I would have been like, this is a joke. I was like, this is, this yeah. is worthless. Like this is nothing. And there's right. still a 2% of me. That's like, Oh, I really hate that. Like I would hate to like, yeah. I, I could never coach like that, but he so knows so clearly. Move? 
He, he, knows, he, knows, he knows so clearly in his mind what he's talking about. Right. And I think he sees all the same things that I see. And he sees all the same things that Louis sees. He yeah. just puts them into different categories, puts different labels on them. Most importantly is that his players know uh, what he's talking about, or he can, he can transfer that information or at least at the very least those skills, he can transfer them to his players. Yeah. And even if, and maybe this is the key part is even if, his footwork, let's say his co- his footwork coaching isn't perfect. Let's say he's missing out on something and some of his players have uh, their footwork isn't perfect. He still is a damn good coach. Yeah. Uh, he took, he started with Tommy Paul when he was outside the top hundred. Now he's 19th in the world. Yeah. That's good coaching. You know, yeah. he's been with them for a few years. Same thing. Kevin is, he has demonstrated that repeatedly that he, yeah. that he is a good coach. And so it it's, yeah, we don't have to sit there and go like, ah, oh, yeah, but that's not the actions method. So, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, yeah, but you know, that, and that, and that goes back to what we're talking about with coaching skills. There's a lot more than just your, your understanding of, of the yeah. game and, and how to deliver a good session on court. It's also about everything you do off court and, and players trust yeah. and picking the right tournaments and all these other things. So yeah. Um, but I just thought it was funny as I was listening to that. It was going like, yeah, five years ago I would have thrown this in the garbage, but but it and was just a good podcast. To end on that note, it was like uh I think there's a lot of coaches in development who will who will listen to like a a touring coach say something about some skill, like and the mindset of like this guy could never develop a player. And it's like, well, hmm. maybe, but they're not a developmental coach. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it's uh they're they're as much as they're in the ballpark of being the same, it's tennis coaching. There's so many different, like different ways, or I guess different, different tennis coaching. What am I trying to say? Like yeah, different roles, at, right? Yeah. Roles. So that, thank you. That's wow. How I struggled with that word. It's like, great. Um, yeah, no, I guess different roles for sure. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah different roles, different job descriptions. Um, yeah. And that goes into, I mean, we could go on and on forever, but I mean, that goes into also like coach ed and coach development. Right. It's like, is the, you know, d- different, different curricula and different coach education, coach development experiences for different roles, right. And different co- d- people who do different types of work. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer that the coach education that they get should be catered to uh, the type of work that they're doing tough to organize and, and tough logistically. And there's lots of challenges involved, but um, but yeah, we can't, we can't train coaches as if they're all going to be doing the same type of job because they won't. Yep. yep. Right. But, yeah, well yeah. said. Well said. Did you want to throw your uh, ball feeding thing at me, or? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Just to just to finish off real quick here. So, um, I had asked you before the pod to just very quickly think in your head about like just a general two hour training session of of group training and how many balls are fed by the athletes in a two hour session. And obviously, we don't know the exact number, but what's your what's your ballpark figure on how many balls a player feeds in two hours? Will you? Will you like? uh dump me as a friend if i if i say it depends <laughs> if, I, if i if i give a shitty answer again i mean Did you just be specific once in this podcast Zach? No, oh <laughs> god i know oh, just, just roughly okay you don't even have to answer well but but, you know here's my but here's my here's my thing though is yeah. like if i'm doing like a, a real technical block i mean i you know i i as i said before i'm not a big fan of the like four to a court system so we, we don't i don't do four to a court your group training almost yeah. everything i do is is two to a court or occasionally three but like if I'm in a big technical block, then there's a chance that I take the basket out and I'm feeding a lot and then they're right. not feeding so much, but I'd say most of the time that's not the case. But then again, you know, I, there's a lot of times when we're doing points and stuff and they're feeding the ball in, but if there's mm-hmm. a specific feed that I want to create in a specific situation, then I'll stand behind them and I feed in the first ball and then we play. So, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
I can't, I can't, you yeah. want me to make up a number? I can give no. you a number if you want. I, I well, can no, you know what? It was more, it was more to start the conversation, but, but I feel yeah. like we're there. Um, and I think part of the problem here is like, if I wanted the specific answer, I should have asked a more specific question, but, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just terrible with this. We, no, we've learned no. that over the course of the podcast. <laughs> I won't give a straight answer if my life depends on it. Right. Right. Well, the overall, the overall thing that I'm trying to get at here is in, in Canada, we always hear these, these rumors of like, oh, in France, there's one club doing this. Oh, in Spain, there's one club that's doing this. And <laughs> one of, one of these stories came across, like, uh, came across my desk a while ago, which is like, yeah, there's apparently one, one club in France where for their, for their group training session, they, they no longer allow their players to feed a ball underhand or sidearm. So like every feed they send has to be thrown overhead, head, like a serve. Oh, okay. Like, okay. That's kind of, so I was like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. So a couple of years ago, we were just playing around with it. Like we did one one session of something where we were just like, hey, just for these next this next week, we're just only going to feed like this. And now you make exceptions, right? If somebody's warming up volleys, you're obviously not going to serve at them. But for the most part, and <laughs> <laughs> well, you might, depending on if you like to play or not. Um, but the whole rationale behind this this idea is like, well, how many balls are fed by players in group training sessions throughout a, like a two hour training block? And then um, how many clubs struggle to do as much serving work as they would normally do or as they should do not normally do as they should do and the last part which i thought was interesting was like when you go around the tournaments and you see players that are warming up for matches and they feed a ball underhand or sidearm how often Mm -hmm. does that player have a very visible um technical deficiency or relaxation deficiency with feeding it's like well it's rare like most players in the Mm -hmm. world that you Mm -hmm. see there's some there's some level of like a slow fast nice rhythm to get the get the feed in in the court Mm. So this whole concept was like, why are we wasting? Oh, and the last thing would be, oh, no, okay, no. Uh, so this whole concept is like, why are we wasting whatever it is, a hundred balls each each day, maybe more than that, on feeding balls underhand? That's not realistic. Where every everything could just be started with the overhand serve. And breaking this down even more, you and I have talked on this podcast a little bit about the idea of like practice variability. But the statistics would show that the more the more somebody's doing a skill in a variety of situations, so it's like. Maybe the toss isn't perfect because it's a quick toss. Maybe the setup's not perfect because it's quick setup. Maybe they're two meters behind the baseline as they do it. But this whole idea of like, how do we get more repetitions on serve to ensure that, A, we're just doing it more and that the players are just way more proficient doing things over their head. Um, so that's the theory. Yeah, I I had no idea where you were going there. Now, I, now I'm now i with you. Uh, can, right. I, can, I ju- can I jump in? Or are you... Uh... How dare you? But yes, go ahead. No, I, I I was just gonna say if you have more, I mean if you have more, go ahead. But I was just gonna say, um, but th- this must have go back several years then because I distinctly remember that that was a big talking point during my coach too, and I remember um, I remember people talking about it, and I also remember we did a, at one point in our coach too part of the part of the course was we did some shadowing i think we did some observing actually by the way we didn't meet like shake hands or even speak to each other but that actually was the first time i saw bronco going back to last week's pod because he was because he was at uh whatchamacallit mayfair oh yeah and and they ran an academy session and we watched um and but i remember and eddie it was eddie uh briswell who was running the session um and I remember they did something and it was a, the focus was on like, uh, you know, rallying with quality, like you know, rising past the baseline type of stuff in the cross court, like taking the ball at the peak, whatever. And I remember he said, uh, you start every rally with a second serve. And and they were rallying cross court, four door court, but you started every rally with a second serve and then you started counting. Um, and so that I mean, that goes back a long time ago at this point. Um yeah. 
and so, so I, I think it's, it's super interesting. I remember thinking about it. Um, I obviously didn't really implement it in my practice. I think maybe I tried it a couple of times. Um, you know, off the top of my head, my objections are a, that it's a little bit, um, that it's slower, of course, like it's a little bit less natural. They have to make sure their feet are set up, get in position. Of course, there's a chance of missing in the net. And then that really slows things down. And then of course, when just jump in for any confusion here. Um, when we, when we're, cause we're playing around with it now, when we do it, it's not like they have to run to the baseline and do it. It's like, if they're two meters behind the baseline, they just take whatever stance they're in and just comfortably just throw a ball above their head and feed it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But just to, just yeah, to be clear yeah. the I think that's, left. yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think that's really cool. I, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good, that's good information, but, but yeah, I'd be, wor- I'd be worried about them missing in the net and also just like, uh, you know, if it just like kind of kills the rhythm, if they, if they, you know, they're trying to feed, like you're hitting cross courts, right. And you want to feed to the, to the, to the backhand to start yep. a cross court backhand rally. But then you, you know, you miss t- you, you know, you're a little off on the serve and you hit it to the, hit it to the forehand and then, or you get it into the body or you accidentally hit it way too wide and then they have to chase it. Like, yep. uh, just kind of killing the rhythm a little bit, but, but I do like, I mean, I do like ideas like that. Like, cause everything you said is absolutely right. Like, I mean, the, the variability angle and the the fluidity and the relaxation and the being comfortable with things above your head and the importance of the serve, like it makes, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, and here's two other things I'll throw at you. Here's two other things. Yeah, yeah. Another one is if we talk about how much time we do with um, like warming up serve and return and training, like every day we'll mm-hmm. take maybe five, five or seven minutes to do it. And I mean, we can, we can train the serve and return in that time as well. But when we have sessions where like the entire session, every player has been warming up overhand already, we've been able to go, straight into points okay so it's like maybe maybe we're getting some time back there but then the yeah. last thing which i think is interesting is like the um uh i guess the perceptual skills that players are going to get from tracking tracking a ball that's hit overhead and the perceptuals they get of like recognizing depth and also receiving a ball that um might in general be on a, on a steeper angle uh like a, mm. a steeper ascending angle so essentially not only are they serving more but how often are they are we recreating a situation where they're simulating a return more often as well. Um, right. So I think there's a lot of, lot to this. I think it's interesting. Um, and so in, in our academy, we, we've tried this before, and I, I I really hope we keep doing it. But with our ITF group, at least, we're really going to try to make this a, a thing over our, our whole winter session. Cool. Um, and I'm going to throw it back to you. Obviously, I'll give you updates and stuff on, on how it's doing. But we're, let's just see if, like, does this work? And does this make sense? And, uh, and yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, that, that's really cool. Yeah, I'd love to hear how it goes. Give me updates. Well, I was just going to say, um, this is uh, it's probably more work than it's worth. But I was just going to say, could you film it? Because yep. I'd love to see what it looks like. Well, and then I was thinking it'd be fun. Like you could, uh, this is like, hey, everyone, want to listen to a private conversation between Zach and Al? <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like if, you want, if you wanted to, it's maybe too much work, so it's not worth it. But if you wanted to film one of your sessions, mic'd up, and send it to me, and then I film one of mine, mic'd up, and send it to you. I think that'd be really fun. That'd be great. But you'll immediately know you'll you'll quickly learn how much of a uh, a, a hack I am, Zach. So maybe that'll. Yeah. <laughs> I'll mic up Bronco. How about that? Tr- tr- trust me, buddy. I already knew. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, but that's, that's really great, though. <laughs> they, I mean, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, man. All right, man. Thanks. Talk to you soon. That was the great zone. See you.